0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews eleven thirty through 40 This is the word of God. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises,
1: Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this morning we have that we can gather together and study your word. May we, as students of the word, listen carefully to the message of Hebrews this morning, this great message of faith, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you've been with us the past number of months, you know we've worked a long way through the book of Hebrews, and we come today to the end of chapter 11, which is this great hall of faith. This is the fifth sermon in chapter 11. The hall of faith is, in many ways, the capstone of the great argument that the preacher of Hebrews has given to us throughout the book of Hebrews. The argument has been developing in who Christ is and what he's done for us, the sacrifice that he made, that he himself is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament, and that Christ now is our only hope, our only future. And so the preacher of Hebrews now turns to chapter 11 with this great hall of faith. And it begins with many characters with which we're very familiar. You remember early on we saw Abel and Noah, uh, and then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, eventually Moses. We see all of these great characters of the Old Testament, people we learn about in Sunday school and learn throughout our lives as great pictures of what it is to have great faith in God. But the preacher of Hebrews now comes to a point towards the end where he feels the pressure of having to now wrap it up. And as Melissa read there, you saw he reached a point where he no longer developed the stories of these characters, but instead simply named names, threw them out there, assuming now that the hearers could hear these names and know what their stories are. This message of faith is critical. This message is a message that all of us are called to deliver to the world in which we live. And as I'm thinking about this uh, conclusion towards this end of uh, chapter 11 in Hebrews, I'm reminded of a parable told by the Danish philosopher, Christian philosopher, Sorn Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard used parables often to sort of describe things that you could think about. And one parable he talked about was a parable of a small Denmark village where he lived, a small village where a circus came to town. Now the circus came and set up on the outskirts of the village, set up out there so that they could have the, the circus... Well, as the circus set up the day before the first performance, the circus caught fire. And so the manager, seeing the circus is about to burn, tried to use the employees he had to put out the fire, but realized that they couldn't. They couldn't put out the fire. And so he now turns to the clown, who's now dressed in full makeup and garb, like you might imagine from a medieval sort of clown. And he yells to the clown and says, run to the village and tell the villagers we need their help to put out this fire. Run to the village. We need their help immediately. So the clown immediately runs to the village and tells them there's a fire in the circus. You need to come help us because if you don't, the fire may spread through the the grass here to where you're at. Now the villagers knew exactly what this was, they thought. This is simply an advertisement from the circus to say, come to our circus and enjoy the circus we have. They thought it was a cleverly done sort of advertisement. And as the clown began to exclaim more and more, we need your help, there's a fire out there, they laughed all the more. And the clown, despondent, realized he couldn't seem to get this message through. Now I hope you can sense the point of this parable. The clown is, of course, the preacher or the theologian. Let me invite you to consider yourself one of the clowns. One of those clowns who carries a desperate message to the community, to the village, warning of a fire that puts them in danger. And when you do that, you get simply a ha-ha, a mocking. And the clown comes with this message and he doesn't get the response that he's looking for. Now, what's the solution to this? Well, the first solution we might think of is that the clown should take off his costume and his makeup, look more like the villagers, look more serious than he is as a clown. And that's what Many preachers, many churches, many theologians do today. They say, take off this costume of the clown and instead look more like the world in which we live, look more like this culture. And it reminds me also of another Grimm's fairy tale, if you remember those. There was one where there was a kid that had a a, a large ingot of gold, too heavy to carry. And with this ingot of gold, he realized he couldn't carry it very far, so he made what he thought was an even trade, and he traded the gold for a horse. And realizing he now didn't want the horse, he traded the horse for a cow. And then he walked with the cow for a time but didn't like the cow, so he traded the cow for a pig and then a pig for a goose, and then eventually made an even trade, the goose, for a piece of coal. And then realizing the coal was of no value, he simply threw it in the lake. And that's a trade sometimes we feel like others make, but some Christians feel they have to make to make the gospel sound more palatable, that we just trade it down. We get the hard stuff out of it, the heavy stuff, the important stuff in the end, and we trade it to some other level, thinking we're making an even trade, but in the end you realize what's left on the Sunday morning preaching for many churches is nothing but coal. And so there are movements out there to try and make a palatable message in the modern world, and it falls and it fails because it doesn't have the power that the gold had originally. And so we like the clown, bring a message saying that there's something of value here, don't miss it. And the preacher of Hebrews in chapter 11 is reminding us that the message that he's given to us is a message of gold. And we're to deliver that message, hold on to that message, and keep that message in our teaching, in our preaching, in our lives. So the preacher of Hebrews now comes to chapter 11 as he begins to wrap up, and he has a couple more stories with which we're familiar with, I believe. Uh, And then a few more that we may not be so much, So let's take a look at these. And in the outline that you have, uh, there's simply five of them here. Let me just read them out for you so you have them. First, there's conquering in faith in uh, verse 30. We're going to see the story there of Jericho falling. Adopted by faith, that's Rahab. We see also the fruit with faith, tribulation because of faith, and future glory through faith. And if you look simply at these five points, you see in some way the gospel really developed here. That in all of this, we see there's a problem, particularly in Rahab... We see also that there's fruit for those that have faith. We see that there's tribulation that people go through because of their faith. But there is a hope, a future glory that we have through faith. So let's think first of all about this story we see in verse uh, 30 mentioned. Where the preacher of Hebrews says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now that's all he says in this story. But if you go back to Joshua chapter 6, you remember the story there. The people of Israel had... 40 years earlier escaped Egypt through the exodus. They wandered in the Sinai Desert for 40 years. At the beginning of that exodus, 38 years earlier, Moses had sent 12 spies to spy out the land, and 10 came back with a negative report, 2 came back with a positive report. 38 years later now, the Jewish people are on the threshold of entering now the promised land, and the way you do that is to go through Jericho. As you come through the east, the the, the point of, of attack is Jericho. You want to divide the land in half. And that's exactly where they went. In fact, in the World, uh, First World War, the British, when they were now trying to reconquer the land of Palestine, did exactly the same thing Joshua did, and that's to attack from the east towards the west, towards Jericho. Cut the land in half, attack to the south first and then to the north later. And so that's a strategy that Joshua has here. So the children of Israel now cross the land and they come to Jericho. And when they do, they need to find a way of conquering this fortified city. Now Jericho, 3,000 years ago, Jericho 3,000 years ago was already 7,000 years old. Uh, it is today s- uh, still recognized by archeologists as the oldest continuously habit inhabited city in the world. And so it was already an ancient citadel. It had great walls, it had walls and towers. The reason it had to have all of this is because if you're going to attack the land of Israel, that's where you go. And so they built Jer- uh, Jericho as a city and, and as a defense against those who might attack from the east. And so Jericho is well fort- fortified. Joshua sends two spies. You know the story sends two spies in, and they go into the town, not 12 like Moses did, but two and we think that that's probably because Joshua recognized that only two came back with a good report, so them are going to send two this time. And so he sends these two in, and they uh, eventually go into the city. And where do they go? Where do spies go when they need to enter a strange place? Well, you go to the house of prostitution. Be- this is a spy uh, secrets that not everybody knows. But you go to a house of prostitution because... All sorts of people visit there. Nobody asks questions around there. And so they go to this house of prostitution, which is the house of Rahab. Now we'll see that in a moment. But as they come to Jericho, they now have to figure out a way of conquering Jericho. And what do they do? I imagine perhaps Joshua first held a council of war to figure out what they could do. And they may have had some who said, Well, the only thing we can do against these great walls of Jericho is to build a siege ramp. And hundreds of years later, the Romans would do that at Masada. They'd build a large siege ramp up to Masada so they could now walk their way up to the top. And so perhaps someone said, a siege ramp. Someone else may have said, no, 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 let's starve them out. We'll just besiege the city until they starve out. That's the way to do it. Joshua, of course, had a plan that God had, in fact, arranged. And God said, no, this is what you're going to do. You're going to simply walk around the city for seven days. For seven days, you're going to walk around the city with the priest in front of the Ark of the Covenant, the people behind, seven priests with horns. You're going to walk around the city once on the first day, another, another time on the second day, the third day. But on the seventh day, you're going to walk around the city. And after you do it the seventh time, the priests will blow their ram's horns, the people will all shout, and the walls will come falling down. Now, that was the plan that God gave to Joshua. And as you think about that plan... What do you see in it? First of all, imagine what the the Jews must have thought as they walked around the city on the first day. The the walls didn't fall down one-seventh of the way. Nothing happened. And so they walked around the second day, and and now they weren't down two-sevenths of the way. In fact, the first day, the second day, the third day, nothing happened. And you can imagine the people asking Joshua, what kind of plan is this? How is this supposed to accomplish anything? Not only that, but notice what Joshua was told by God to tell the people. And that's to walk around the city for seven days in silence. And that then becomes the first lesson out of the story of Joshua. Walk around it in silence. And as they did, undoubtedly, the first day, the inhabitants of Jericho would look out over this nation of people, walking around them from the east to the north to the west to the south, and then back again and wondering... What's going on there? What are they planning? The inhabitants of Jericho must have thought that there's some grand strategy in this, and then the Israelites just camped again on the east. And on the second day, they did the same thing, and so the inhabitants are now wondering, these people are crazy. They can't do anything. And so you can imagine the taunts coming out of the city toward the Israelites, uh, mocking them. And then some of those hearing these mocks wondering, I wonder if those inhabitants of Jericho are right. Uh, And so silence became what God called them to do. And as they did, they must have heard the mocking. But what they did was obey. You see, that's the next secret in the fall of Jericho, was the nation of Israel simply obeyed. They did exactly what they were told. And that for us, I think, is an important lesson also. That's the lesson of faith that the preacher of Hebrews was giving to the people that were listening to him. It is that they simply obeyed God's command, even when nothing seemed to happen the first time around. And so they obeyed. They did what he said. Now, they may have had their other plans, and certainly by the third and the fourth day, those who heard the council of war thought perhaps that there may be other ways of taking this city. But they obeyed. And then they not only obeyed, but they obeyed to the end. The first day, the second day, they kept doing it, even when they didn't see results. Now, obedience is important. You remember Saul, the great later king of Israel, failed because of disobedience. And Samuel had to confront Saul and remind him that God's call was to obey. obey. To Obey is better than sacrifice. To obey, that's what they're called to do. Do what God has called them to do. And that's sometimes the easy way into it. We can obey for a time. We can make those first steps. ...but to obey every day when we don't see results. And that's what they did the sixth day. The seventh day, they kept walking around. The third time on the seventh day, they walked around. Still no results. They walked around the fifth time on the seventh day. Still no results. Now they're probably tired, wondering how much more of this. What really is God's plan here? There's another character from the Old Testament, Naaman the Syrian, a a general... ...who uh, met with Elijah. and, And Elijah said, if you want to be healed of your leprosy... "'Dip seven times in the Jordan River.'" And Naaman objected, said, "'The Jordan River's a, a cesspool. "'It's a mess. "'It's a muddy, ugly river. "'I could go back to Syria "'where we have good, clean water from the mountains. "'Why don't I just go up there?' And the message was, "'No, seven times in the Jordan River.'" And Second Kings, 2 Kings uh, tells us that as Naaman went down, he told his servant, "'What am I doing in this mud? "'Why am I doing this?' And the message was, "'Just keep doing what the prophet said. "'Do it again and again.'" And on the seventh time, he comes out, and his leprosy was healed. And that's the same message that God was giving to the Israelites here. Just do what I ask to the end, even when you don't see results. And so they march around the city, and eventually, on the seventh time, on the seventh day, the priests blow the trumpets. The nation of Israel shouts, as they were now told, now is the time, and the walls fell. The walls fell before them and they were able to take the city. That's the story of Joshua chapter 6. And when the preacher of Hebrews, in Hebrews eleven thirty reminds us of that, he's saying, remember all that went into what the Hebrews did, the Israelites did, in Joshua chapter 6. Remember their obedience. Their silence before God as they listen to God, not the people. And their obedience before God, obedience even to the end. So the faith message of Hebrews 11 is to obey to stay faithful and obey. That's what faith is. That's what our faith requires, that we obey even to the end. And the message for the Christian, I think, out of this is, as we know, we're called also to obey, and we need to do that consistently and fully in all parts of our life. Even when we feel like we're attacking an ancient citadel too strong for us to overcome, We remember that we're not overcoming this ancient citadel based on our own strength, but instead on the power that God has. And so we simply follow His plan, what His way is, until we accomplish what God has called us to do. And so from the outside, that's like a picture of the Christian attacking the the, the fortress in front of us. But then think about those inside the city as they look over the walls and mock. And that's like the the non-believer who thinks that I'm in a well-fortified city... The secular mind believes that they live in a well-fortified fortress that can't be overthrown by the, the teaching of the gospel or the Christian message because they've got a history, a long history, of denying that there's a God, of saying there's no God out there, there's no consequences for my sin, and therefore I can just ignore all of that. And they stay comfortable behind that wall, not knowing that there's an impending judgment that comes to those who don't face the truth of what the gospel now tells us, that there is a judgment, but there's also a way out. The way out. How do we know about that? Well, that's the story of Rahab. So let's look now at Hebrews 11, verse 31. Again, verse 30, By by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. We see in this story of Rahab, a prostitute becomes central in the story. Now, one thing that we're all liable to do at points in our life is always want to compare ourselves, not with the holiness of God's word or God himself, but to look sideways and look at others around us and say, well, I'm not as bad as this person. At least I was never a prostitute. At least I never did these things. And so by doing that, all people, unbelievers in particular, believe that they can compare themselves with others and know that they're better than most. In fact, a Gallup poll was done some number of years ago and asked people, do you believe that you're better than most? And nearly 80% of the people believe they're in the top 50% of good people in the world. And so that shows us there's an overestimation of our own good deeds and our own morality... And remember there that they're starting from a very low bar, comparing themselves simply to others, not to God Himself. And so let's not do that. And so the Bible gives us Rahab as this second lesson of faith. Look at Rahab, it says. And so what do we know of Rahab? Well, Rahab was a Gentile. Rahab was an Ammonite. She was a prostitute. So she had a lot of things going against her. As a Gentile, she was not part of God's people, the Israelites. As an Ammonite, she was one of those who were part of a world in which child sacrifice was was known. So in the Canaanite villages, there were many things going on in the pagan world that were just horribly uh, abusive and ugly. This was how depraved the world had been. And so Rahab was one of those. And not only one of those, an Amorite, but she was also a prostitute. So if you could find anybody with... Uh, less credentials to commend themselves to God, you couldn't find anybody less than Rahab. She was it. But when you look at the story of Rahab, we see the character that she has. Now, why did Joshua send in the two spies? Did he send in the two spies because God needed to know something about the, the city? Certainly not. God already had the plan. We know that. God already gave Joshua the plan. The reason that Joshua sent in the two spies, we can deduce I think after the fact by looking at what they accomplished and what they accomplished was the rescue of Rahab and her family the two spies that went in met Rahab when they went to her brothel and already she told them we've heard what you people have done now where did Rahab hear about what the nation of Israel had done Well, probably from the soldier customers that visited her brothel They would have known out there. They heard about the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. They heard about how the Israelites had conquered two of the uh, Amorite uh, kings in the east just days before. So she was familiar with this, and she knew now that the Israelite nation is camped on the east of their city. And so she knew all of this. Rahab had heard all of this, and she listened to it. And what she heard, she now believed. And so on the one hand, we see Rahab as the picture of somebody who's living a depraved and sinful life, who now hears what God is doing. And what God is doing is bringing the nation of Israel to her threshold. God is bringing the one hope that she might ever have, her and her people, to their threshold. And she believed. And so when she confronts these two spies, or talks with them really, uh, the two spies tell her what's going on, and she says, look, just do one thing for me. I will help you, but just save me And my family. And so a plan is devised where she'll cast down or she'll wrap a scarlet cord on the outskirts of the window where she lived on the walls so that the nation of Israel would know, don't harm Rahab and her family. And that's what she did, and she was eventually saved from that. And so Rahab, who's a sinner, now hears what's going on and finds a way of rescue. And in this way of rescue, she exercises faith. Now, think about what she did. She first of all has to repudiate her own family her own people, her own world. And that citadel that had stood there for thousands of years as a strength in the land, she knew would not last. And so she gave all that up and walked away from that. So she had to first acknowledge that she has to step away from the world in which she lives. Secondly, she had to now commit herself to a new people. And that's much of what the gospel talks about. It's for the unbeliever to leave the unbelieving world And the citadel that we built up around ourselves to make us feel like we can withstand any argument that there's a God, anything that might intimidate us, and instead now say, no, the citadel won't last. And we need now to commit ourselves to God's people. And that's what she does. She says, I want to be one of you. And she was, and what happened was she was in rescue because of her faith. And so the preacher of Hebrews in chapter 11 points to the story of Rahab as one of those whose faith saved her. Now what she did was she tied this scarlet cord on the outside of her window so she could be recognized and eventually saved through that. And beginning in the early centuries of the church, this scarlet cord was recognized and used in some ways as a picture of Christ. Because we know the Passover, the blood painted on the, uh, the, the doorpost, the lintel, and when the blood from the Passover was painted on the, the top of the doorpost, that the, the uh, angel of death would pass over. And they knew of these stories. She had heard of these things. And perhaps in some way, the scarlet cord is a picture of that. But notwithstanding that, we see it's, it's really a, a sense of that. And, and Rahab then becomes not only an important character in biblical history. We see her mentioned several times in the New Testament. Not only in Hebrews chapter 11 here, but also in James 2 where James also says that you should exemplify the faith and good works of Rahab and what she did. But she also shows up in the book of Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus. Now think about this. We have Rahab, and she would marry a guy named Salmon. So Rahab and and, and Salmon get married, and they have a child named Boaz. And Boaz would marry a Moabite woman named Ruth. And, And Boaz and Ruth would have a child named Obed, whose son would be Jesse, whose son would be King David. And so Rahab becomes the great-great-grandmother of King David, Ruth, the great-grandmother of King David. And then that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 1. And if there was any place where you would think that the New Testament writers would want to kind of clean up the story, you'd think it would have been to erase this prostitute from the line of Jesus. They certainly included that to show us that that's who God reaches out to. No matter what a person has done, no matter what their lifestyle may have been, there's always salvation that comes in Christ. And that's the message. Even Christ himself, humanly, was descended from a prostitute and Gentiles. And a lot of other ugly characters you might read in Matthew chapter 1, if we, if we did that some other time. But that's the message of Rahab. So the faith that we're called to here is a faith in that. And again, as, as Christians, we live in an alien world. When you leave the secular city of Jericho and you come to where the Israelites are, you now live outside of the confines of the safety of the secular world, those great walls, in an alien world, but you know that that secular wall will fall. And that's where we're at now. We know one day, when God remakes everything, that we will then be part of His true city, the new city, the new heavens, the new earth. So that's Rahab. Now the preacher of Hebrews, as I get sometimes when I look at the clock, falls into a moment of panic thinking, I've got so much more to say and I'm running out of time. And so he writes now in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would uh, fail to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith, then we see the characters mentioned, and now we see some description of of them. So Gideon, you know, was told by God, leave your army behind, take 300 men and you'll conquer the Canaanites. And that was a message of don't try and conquer in your own strength, but instead conquer based on the provision that God will give you. And so the Israelites throughout its history always knew the story of Gideon was a picture of God providing for us when we are weak. And then after that is uh, Barak, which means the blessed one. Uh, Barak also is a general. Uh, who conquered the Canaanites. Samson, we know, was given great strength to uh, uh, defeat the Philistines. Uh, Jephthah was another general. David, we don't need to say much about David. Uh, He's well known. The pivotal character in the Old Testament after Abraham is going to be Moses and then David. And Samuel, the prophets. And so we have all of these great heroes of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, that talk about who they were and what they did. And then he goes on to describe some of what... uh, They uh, accomplished who conquered kingdoms, as David did, enforced justice, attained uh, promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Who's that? Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel chapter six, quenched the power of fire. Who did that? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in Daniel chapter three. So these are all stories that the Jewish people were well familiar with. Escapes to the edge of the sword were made strong out of weakness. And that phrase there, we were made strong out of weakness, is, I think, the great pivotal message of the, these verses. Because all of these characters were made strong out of their weakness. They weren't strong in their own strength and accomplishments out of their own great strength and, and skills, but they were made strong out of their weakness. And so the Israelites always knew that their great heroes of the faith were, in fact, weak and, and, and needed God's strength. And so when the preacher of Hebrews mentions all of these stories, he makes that central. This is why they were great. Because they were they made strong out of their weakness. They became mighty, mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. This now is sort of the great picture of faith that many churches want to teach on Sundays. That you, and this is true, but you can be made strong out of your weakness And that's a message of faith that out of your weakness, God will make you strong. What we do know is that God promises us that he will give us the strength to overcome whatever challenges we face. But this message, you see, can so easily be twisted and contorted to say that out of your weakness, God will not only make you strong, but will give you all the promises and all the desires of your heart. The verse they might quote: "I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me," and I thought I might make a T-shirt that says, "I can all I can do all things through a verse taken out of context." <laughs> but they think that, and they teach, and it sounds very appealing to the the people that God will give you whatever you ask, whatever you need. You will never be defeated. You can be like David. You can be like Samson. Like Samuel, you can have great success and have all that you ever need. And just before the preacher of Hebrews thinks to leave them with that message, he turns it on them. So look now at what he does, as we see now, the tribulation because of faith. And again he says in verse 36, "...women receive back their dead by resurrection." And that refers to the Shunammite woman and the widow Zarephath, two stories with Elijah and Elisha, where their dead sons were brought back to life in terms of a resuscitation, brought back into this life, they would die again, but brought back by resuscitation to life again. But what he says next is pivotal. Others suffered mocking and flogging. So uh, some women, uh, let's see again. Uh, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Now, the women received back their children from the dead, we know that, by resurrection. Some, who were the some that were tortured? Refusing to accept release. And there's stories that are told in other places that we don't have in in our Bible. Uh, There's another batch of books that Catholics include that are called the Apocrypha. But the Apocrypha is a a number of books that have great historical value. And as we read the Apocrypha, I'm just going to grab the stand here. When you read the Apocrypha, uh, 2 Maccabees is uh, a story told of what the people of Israel went through after the land was taken by the Greeks. Remember Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great takes uh, the land, takes the world. And after his death, the land was divided among four generals. Seleucus took the northern part that included Syria. Ptolemy took Egypt. Lysimachus took up to the east where Greece was and others. Uh, but later on down the road, the Seleucid king would be a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes would be the one guy who most persecuted the people of Israel. And so at some point, rather than allowing the Israelites to live in a normal world of peace as being subjected to the king, but Antiochus took it up a notch, decided now he would sacrifice a pig in the temple in Israel. And then what he did was to take and ask that the prominent families of the land be brought out front. And 2 Maccabees chapter 7, which is a great historical retelling of what was going on in this era, tells us this. It happened also that seven brothers and their mother were arrested and were being compelled by the king under torture with whips and thongs to, part, uh, to partake of unlawful swine flesh. This is what the preacher of Hebrews is talking about, 2 Maccabees 7. See, they would have known these stories, and, and we just don't have the same familiarity with them. One of them, one of the brothers, acting as their spokesman, said to the king, "'What do you intend to ask and learn from us? For we are ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our ancestors.'" And the king fell into a rage and gave orders to have pans and cauldrons heated. These were heated immediately and he commanded that the tongue of their spokesman, the oldest brother, would be cut out and they and they scalp him and they cut off his hands and they cut off his feet while the rest of the brothers and the mother looked on. Now you don't normally come to church and expect these sort of gory stories but look, we live in a real world where this is what's going on. And, 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 and Let's be serious about what really it required of, not people in this country today, but in many Christians around the world this morning, they face this same sort of threat. And they cut out uh, his scalp and they cut off his hands and his feet while the rest of the brothers and the mother looked on. And when he was utterly helpless, the king ordered them to take him to the fire, still breathing, and to fry him in a pan. And the smoke from the pan spread widely. But the brothers and their mother encouraged one another to die nobly, saying, The Lord God is watching over us, as Moses declared in his song that bore witness against the people to their faces, when he said, And he will have compassion on his servants. So the story shows the six brothers and mother watching the oldest brother being tortured and fried and killed, saying, Let's stay strong. And after the first brother had died in this way, they brought forward the second for their sport. And they tore off the skin of his head with his hair. And they asked him, will you eat the pig rather than have your body punished limb by limb? And he replied in the language of his ancestors and said to them, no. Therefore he in turn underwent tortures as the first brother had done. And when he was at his last breath, he said, you accursed uh, wretch. You dismiss us from the present life. But the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. And the second brother's hope was in a resurrection. And for the Jewish people, resurrection was their hope. It wasn't in this life, it was in the future life. And after him, the third was the victim of their sport. And when he was demanded, he quickly put out his tongue. He stuck it out and he told them, cut it off. And he said to them, I've got these from heaven, and because of his loss, I disdain them. And from him, I hope to get them back again. As a result, the king himself and those with him were astonished at the young man's spirit, for he regarded his suffering as nothing. The third brother says, look, you can take my tongue and my hands. You can take them today, but I'll get them back at the resurrection. And it goes on with the fourth and the fifth and the sixth brother. And it gets down to the seventh brother. And the mother looks at him and says, Stay strong like your other brothers did because because there is a resurrection, there is a hope. And I know I will meet all of you on the other side in the resurrection when God fulfills his promise. And it goes on to describe all that they went through. Verse 39, I skipped a lot of verses. And the king fell into a rage and handled him worse than the others, being exasperated at his scorn. So he died in his integrity, putting his whole trust in the Lord. Last of all, the mother died after her sons. Let this be enough then, the writer says, about the eating of sacrifices and the extreme tortures. And so the writer of Maccabees, 2 Maccabees, says, this is what they went through for their faith. This is what they had to go through. And he says, that's enough of the story. You got the point. Sometimes the faith that we think will give us whatever we want, we realize it's simply us putting our agenda first. A lot of times, think about this, a lot of times our faith is not in God's agenda, it's in our agenda. Our faith is that God will give us our agenda. And that's always encouraging to think that we can draw up and construct whatever life we want, and that God will simply sign the check at the bottom and say, okay, you can have all those things. And there's many who think that they're Christians because that's a message that they've been taught. A message that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. Uh, There was a preacher some years ago, uh, Rod Parsley. I saw. I used to kind of watch and research his stuff. But Rod Parsley was preaching to a crowd of 1,500, maybe 2,000 in his church in Ohio. And he, he was explaining that the reason you're poor is because Satan has taken away your stuff that God wanted you to have. God wanted you to be healthy. He wants you to be wealthy. Satan is taking it away. And what you need to do now is have that sort of faith that says to Satan, I want my stuff back. And then the the crowd with him, with Parsons, began to yell out to Satan, I want my stuff back. I want my stuff back. And you think about the folly and foolishness of that. Like that's what really matters, having your best life now with your stuff back. And although we see times in our life and we like the testimonies where people can stand up and say that in a time of financial need I came to a moment where God provided for me. And we've all had that and know that. Perhaps like this mother with her seven sons we might also say at some point, even if I don't get that sort of restoration now I'll be faithful anyway. And that's a picture that she gives us here. The picture of Hebrews chapter 11 is that there are those who suffer And when we read this passage again, we see how much of that the people of God have always had to face. And so again, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, 2 Maccabees 7, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others, and see now he's pivoting from what faith is. There's one side of faith that says everything will be good, God will give it to you. There's another side of faith that says sometimes it leads to disastrous, torturous consequences. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. That would be Isaiah. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And yet he says, of whom this world was not worthy. And those are the great heroes of the faith, not simply those that have great stories to tell about how great things are. Think about David and Jonathan. Remember these two young men working together? David goes on to become king of Israel and, and, and the, 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 in the lineage and the ancestry of Jesus himself. Jonathan goes on to suffer a torturous, difficult death at the end. They started at the same place, but their lives ended up differently. But they were both part of the plan that God had and both rescued from that. And so faith isn't only about having all these easy things happen. And that's where we get down to the final point, verse 39, future glory through faith. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. What was promised was the Messiah, what was Christ. And they did not have that in their lifetime, but we do. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. You see, the point that he's making here is that there is a future. And as this woman in 2 Maccabees 7 tells us, there's a resurrection, there's a future. And the Jewish people, many of them, not all, but many believed in a future resurrection. Remember, the Sadducees said there is no resurrection. Everything we have is today. And after that, there's death. Uh, Epicurus, one of the great philosophers of the ancient world, said, Life would be easy if I did not believe that there was life after death. I mean, think about it. Death would be easy. If you knew that death was the end of it, you could face it bravely, knowing that this is the end. But Epicurus couldn't say that there was. And so the Epicurean philosophy, which is uh, actually very prominent today in many ways. But Epicurus said, if, if there was no life after death or thought that there might be, then I could die comfortably. Why does he think that there might be? And that's because God has placed in the hearts and the minds of all people the idea that there is an eternity. There is an eternity in their hearts. We know that there's something more out there that we face. And so while the world might tell us that we can satisfy our actual base needs, uh, if you studied psychology, you might remember Abraham Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which starts out that the needs that people have begin with the physical things. And so they need food and shelter. They need these sorts of things. But once those needs are satisfied, you need more social-type needs, and so you need companionship and friendship and love. But once those needs are satisfied, the highest pinnacle of the hierarchy of needs, Maslow says, is to be self-actualized, and that is to become who you're called to be. Be who you're supposed to be. That's to be self-actualized. Now, Maslow is, in many ways, the, the, the modern father of humanist psychology, And so many churches kind of say the same thing. Just be who you're supposed to be. You can be those things and God will help you get there. Maslow published that in 1943. But just before he died in 1972, a collected series of his essays were published. And in those essays, they talked about, Maslow talked about what was missing. And he said in my recent research in the last decades, talking with those successful people who have accomplished so much, I realized they realized that even after they were self-actualized and became all they were supposed to be, there's still something missing. And Maslow even recognized it was a sense of transcendence, a sense that there's something more than this physical world. There's a sense of transcendence, that there's got to be something more. And so for Maslow, he's left with this. But we now know where that need for transcendence comes from, because God has given all, us, all of us that sense, There's got to be something more. There is some life after death. And the promise of Hebrews 11, verse 40, is that there is this future resurrection. There's a better promise. There's a better hope. As we think about this, we can think now about the message of the clown. The clown who walks around. People might say, how ridiculous that is to believe in a future resurrection, to believe in a, a life after death. There's no evidence of God out there, they might say. Why look at that? Well, if we have to walk around in the clothes of a clown and keep preaching this message, remember, it's gold. Don't trade it for something less, thinking it's going to be easier to tote around. It might be easier to tote around, but it's not going to help you. The message of the clown is to preach this message, this message of faith, this message that there is a hope and a resurrection, and we can have that. Uh, as you, I've mentioned before, my daughter and I went to Rome a year ago in March, just before COVID hit. And I say this because the Pasqualis were here. Uh, but we went to Rome and saw many things. Now, back when I was uh, in my first year of college, I was introduced to a number of artists, and I always loved artists. Uh, art, art history, the development of it. And one of the great painters in history was a man named Caravaggio. Uh, Caravaggio learned uh, and did new things with lighting and with passion and and this sort of painting. And one of the great paintings of Caravaggio was the conversion of St. Paul, and it hangs in a church, Santa Maria del Popolo. Uh, And so beginning 40 years ago in college, I always wanted to see that painting, and I've been to many art museums around the world in different places and and enjoyed that, but I always thought I wanted to see this conversion of St. Paul, Caravaggio. And 40 years passed before finally I had a chance to go to Rome. And so this was on the bucket list. They got to make it there, got to do this. And so we go here, there, there. And then on the day we're going out to Popolo, Piazza de Popolo, we go out there. And because of COVID, the church where it hangs closed just 10 minutes before I got there. So I waited 40 years and traveled halfway around the world and missed it by 10 minutes. And we sat there at the piazza where we could sit, and actually, that's all we did the rest of that night. As I kind of regretfully thought, just 10 minutes, I may never see a chance to see it again. And you think the gospel now is in front of us. Don't miss it by 10 minutes. When it's offered to us, the story of this great message of faith, don't miss it by showing up late. The gospel comes to us, and today all of us are invited to partake of it and enjoy its great beauty and its great benefits. Let's all stand as we pray. And as we pray, Father, we recognize in you such a great beauty. And in the conversion of St. Paul, Caravaggio pictures Paul, who was slain spiritually, recognizing his own sin and he turned to you and in that great crisis moment we know of his conversion and in our own lives we know we have that same need of a crisis moment where we now turn from our own world our own world is where an enemy against you but now turn into a friend for you And so lord we ask that each person here those who are believers that we might be strengthened by this message of faith from hebrews that we might be strong in our faith, facing not only the good times, but also the threats that may come. But for any unbeliever that may be here, we ask now that they too might recognize their great, glorious Savior in Christ. There's no need to now stand in a citadel and fight against God, but now turn towards God, turn for God, accept Christ as their Savior, we pray. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.